You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. An act of kindness may have saved the life of veteran Maui lawmaker Roz Baker. The former state senator offered help to a visiting couple with a ride to the airport, only to later see the glow of Lahaina Town in the distance. To her horror, the community she represented would be destroyed, and all her personal belongings and mementos of a career that spanned uh, almost 30 years all up in smoke. We talked to Baker yesterday, who was focused on hope for the future. Some of the things, unfortunately, that went down in the fire can never be replaced. You know, a lot of the things from my days at the NEA, at the legislature, pictures of my grandparents and other family members, jewelry that I treasured. Somebody gifted me a, a ukulele because my other, the one I had burned in the fire. So that was, you know, that was very nice. People have been very, very generous. And I appreciate their aloha. I just wish that my place hadn't burned down. Yeah, and share with our listeners, you know, how that happened. I mean, because the way I understand the story is, you know, an act of kindness on your part got you away from your unit and maybe saved your life in this blaze. That is correct. I was outside behind the condo, puttering around, and a young man and his wife came up, and they had a flight out of Kahului Airport that evening, and they couldn't find a way to get there. And so I didn't have anything on my calendar, so I told them I'd be happy to take them over there. And so we got in, which is why I still have my car. We got in my car and uh, went over there, and I dropped them off, uh, wished them well, And by the time I went to visit with my friend who I was going to stay overnight with, I could see an orange glow coming from Lahaina. And I immediately turned the radio on and I knew what was happening. And it was absolutely devastating. And then to come back a day or two later and see all of the destruction, it just just breaks your heart. You know, so many historic places in Lahaina that are just not there anymore. And of course, the people that lost their lives in the fire, you know, there's just so much that seems to have been taken away from Lahaina. And yet I know that all of the civic organizations, all the other groups in town are pulling together to try to, you know, build back Lahaina strong, stronger than it was. That's heartwarming to see everybody coming together like that for Lahaina. I'm a member of the Rotary Club of Lahaina Sunrise. So we normally meet at on Tuesday morning at 7 o'clock, and our meeting place was the Pioneer Inn. Oh. Uh, so we met on Zoom today at noon, but we're still you know, trying to do our philanthropy and raise funds for victims of the fire and asking our other Rotary Clubs. We had one club that passed the hat at one of their meetings on the mainland and are sending us a check, I think, for about $500 that will go to the folks that are still suffering from the fire. You know, we're hearing about how people are in hotels now, but just, you know, getting them into the next phase into long-term housing is just going to be such a challenge. Oh, it is. It is because we were already short of housing on the west side anyway. And when places like my little complex of Ainanawa burned down, that's just an example of other 
places that went up in flames as well. And so creating an even more critical shortage of housing. And I'm hoping that with the assistance of some of our neighbor islands, as well as the mainland, we will be getting the kind of building materials and equipment in that can start to put up at least some temporary shelters for people. Well, I saw how the fire department there in California sent over a number of RVs for the firefighters who lost their homes, you know, that they would have some temporary place to go to. Yes. Yeah. So just yeah, groups across the country. It's just amazing how generous they have been. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I know that everybody on the West Side and throughout the state is very appreciative of our neighbors across the pond, so to speak, that are helping us out and giving hope. You know, they're busing students from Lahaina over to Kolani Hakoi, the new high school in Kihei to have some of their classes over there. And so teachers on that side are helping out with the effort to make sure that our students don't get lost and left behind because they don't have a school to go to, whether it's Kamehameha III or one of the other schools on the west side. You know, and because you have been impacted by this, I mean, I don't know, is there any insight that you can share, you know, with the county officials or the state officials just being there on the ground and seeing it from your perspective? Well, we can always use all different kinds of resources. And of course, there's a cost to those resources. So to the extent that we can tap into some of the federal dollars that are available, I know that both of our United States senators are there to help us. Our congressional representative from our district, Representative Congresswoman Jill Takuda, are all, you know, doing their best to make sure that we have the resources that are going to be needed to rebuild. And, you know, I appreciate what our colleagues, my former colleagues in the legislature are doing to make sure that there are resources coming into the west side of Maui and other places that need those resources to help us rebuild and help as best we can make people whole. There's been lots of discussion about if we could have done a better job at preventing, you know, this this fire from spreading. I mean, some say it was unprecedented, but there may have been signs that this was more of a risk than anyone anticipated. Anything you see that might come up at the legislature that you think might make a difference to other communities that might be vulnerable? Well, there's always lessons that we can learn from an event like this. It's not something you can totally prepare for, but I think the Maui Emergency Planning Agency as well as the state agency are looking at all of the you know kinds of things that led up to it to see if there are lessons we can learn, how we can improve, whether it's handling electricity. I know one of the agencies said that they were appalled to see that so much of our infrastructure was on wood poles. And so, you know, there that's some things that we can do to make sure that some of these things don't repeat. So I'm actually very thankful that we have caring people both at the state and federal level as well as the local level, of course, to try to do some analysis and to say, okay, let's let's take care of some of these things that may have impacted and spread the fire. 
how can we do a better job of fire safety, you know, teaching about it in the schools, working on those plans in congregate living situations. I think there's a lot that we can do going forward, but as everybody knows, hindsight's 100%. So, you know, we can't live in the past. We just have to learn and move forward and make sure that we are as resilient as we can be. We can utilize best building practices, best fire detection practices, and learn from what we've all gone through so that it won't be repeated in the future. You know, we were able to talk to Senator Angus McKelvey, I think a day or two after the fire, and, you know, he shared his harrowing experience. And, you know, I think he was able to get up in a helicopter to see the harbor, and that was pretty devastating. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he could also share what he was experiencing there on the ground and the problem with communications and in just the basics like, you know, gasoline, that kind of those basic needs just to get around. But I don't know, anything else that you saw in the aftermath? It's really, it's so difficult to think about all that people have lost. We're lucky that more lives were not lost. We're lucky that we are such a good community of neighbors willing to help out and go that extra mile. You know, we often say, lucky we live Lahaina. And even in the midst of this horrible fire, I still think we're very lucky that we have the community of Lahaina and West Maui that we do, because that will enable us to recover and to make the West Side the great place that it's always been for visitors and local folks alike. The Rotary Clubs on the mainland are sending resources over to us to be used to help people begin to recover. So it's nice to be part of a little bit larger network so that more people can receive some of the resources that they need to continue to move forward and rebuild. You know, I would have liked to have gone back into see if there was anything in the ashes of my condominium I could recover, but it's considered because of all of the things that burned down and the toxicity of some of that, we'll never be able to go back in until they take that soil out and begin some kind of remediation process. So I just have to not be, not dwell on the stuff that I don't have anymore, but be thankful for the friends, the colleagues, everybody that has come to help all of us that were negatively impacted by the fire. And even in the midst of all the destruction, we still have a lot to be thankful for. That was former Maui Senator Roz Baker, who for decades was a champion for consumers and public education. She's in temporary lodging and looks forward to returning to the site of her now gutted apartment. We've been seeing lots of focus on Lahaina, but uh, upcountry has been suffering through this disaster, too. Water is at the crux of their woes, and here to talk about that is HPR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pakdahl. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. What's the latest? 
So as we know, um, 19 homes in upcountry Maui did burn in the fire. More than 1,000 acres burned in Olinda and about 200 acres in Kula. Fires are still flaring up more than a month later, and water in some of those areas continues to be unsafe, even though people are still living there. As of 7 p.m. last night, there's actually a big update. So the county of Maui divided that area into five zones on the water system, the upper Kula water system. And zone one, which actually represents a majority of the previous water advisory area, has been declared safe. So that's really good news. Uh, Water in zones two through five continues to be still unsafe. So the Maui, uh, County of Maui says this determination is based on the flow of water through the system and the areas that were impacted directly by structures that burned during the fires. And also taking into consideration which areas had a loss of pressure during the fire, the structures that were destroyed or damaged were isolated by closing off uh, the water valves to those um, structures or and their water meters, I believe, have been removed to ensure that potential contamination was minimal. Um, The Department of Water Supply does recommend um, customers in that cleared zone one to flush their lines and replace water, let the water run for 10 minutes or so. They're saying um, there was some lead detected in fire hydrants along the system after the first samples were drawn, but they are saying that now there is no lead levels above the federal action level that were found in those hydrants. And currently water samples must be sent to the continental U.S. for testing. So that's creating um, some further delays in this whole process. And despite Zone 1 being declared safe, residents have had to live in upcountry Maui without unusable water for more than a month since the fires broke out. Joel Winicky is a farmer who lives in Olinda who's been struggling with crop damages as well as these water quality issues. Where I'm at, we haven't had clean water for, I think, just over a month now. So I haven't showered at home. We can't cook with the water. You can't even boil it. I have to water the plants with it, even though I don't want to, because if I don't, they'll die. Yeah, the water thing's been really difficult, too. You know, I've got a bunch of cases of bottled water. That's what we use to brush our teeth. That's what we use to cook with. That's what we use to drink. Unfortunately for us personally, like we're sunrise to sundown working every day. So like we don't have time to go to the hubs and pick up supplies. There's some hubs in Kula, but nothing in Olinda, up Olinda Road. And it almost feels like we're the forgotten fire, like like we didn't exist. Like there's no mention of the Olinda fires. It was, I believe, the first fire that started and it started right across the street from my house. You know, that's a good point. Yeah, a lot of the focus has been on Lahaina. And, uh, yeah, you didn't hear much about Olinda. Yeah, so he mentioned watering their plants with the water that may be contaminated. Um, And, again, I talked to him right before this um, update came out last night at 7 p.m. So he was speaking um, as of the time that the water was still considered unsafe. But that's one of the things that's been unclear throughout this whole process that people are frustrated with. A lot of people have home gardens. A lot of, you know, um, like Joel Winecki, he's a farmer, and he's not sure. Uh, there's been unclear messaging on whether 
it's okay to water food crops with the water or whether the contamination, possible contamination from the water could be absorbed into the produce. So that's another um, point of confusion that people have had. Another thing that's been confusing for residents during the situation is how the water system is set up. One person I talked to said her neighbor's water was deemed safe based on the county's map um, for a while now, while hers right across the road wasn't. And another person said her home in Olinda was originally on the unsafe list and later got switched with no explanation. And so at this point, it seems like there's a lot of um, uh, feel, people feeling like there's a lack of communication and maybe even a mistrust of the information that the county is sharing. And in addition to the testing that the county is doing, many residents are opting for independent testing. So again, just sort of verifying the information that's been given to them by the county. So some of some folks are reaching out to private companies to do testing. Um, UH also has a water testing program. There's a team from University of Hawaii at Manoa and UH Maui College that are working to address the contaminated drinking uh, water issues on Maui. And they residents can reach out to them to get their water tested. Um, so that's something that some folks have done. And um, someone else I talked to said that there's also in upcountry Maui been fraudulent FEMA claims filed from their addresses. So it's just another level of kind of complication that people have had to go through um, having to verify that the information filed for their residents with FEMA is legitimate and FEMA is now going door to door instead of taking information over the phone, um, which is interesting. You know, we've heard a lot of um, fraudul fraudulent stuff going around, right? Scams, and uh, this, is, this is another one. So um, along with the water issues, fires are still burning in upcountry Maui. The DLNR's Division of Forestry and Wildlife along with the fire department, but the DLNR is kind of taking the lead in these forested areas to help uh, relieve the fire department. Um, daily putting out hotspots. Chris Chow is a DLNR forester who was born and raised on Maui. A lot of it is just burning, burning roots underground. We just continue to shoot water and dig it out and do what we can so until we can call this 100% contained. So I honestly thought that by maybe the second or third week, it'd all be contained, but as I'm learning, throughout this month is fires can burn up to two months. This place will continue to be hot. We'll find stuff probably down the road. I'm born and raised on Maui and, and I've never seen, uh, especially up country, um, how dry it is this year. I was looking at old satellite images and you can see it progressively get drier. Like all of up country is completely brown. And these roads that we're driving, you can tell this place is dry based on the soil. It is just powder. Like you can, you drive over it and this, this dust kicks up, just walking on it, you got powder everywhere. The vegetation is just, it's just so crispy. So stuff, when you know, when it was catching fire, it was just like within seconds, an entire bush would be on fire. You know, and I know just as I drive around, uh, you know, here on Oahu, I get nervous looking at the, you know, the dry uh, brush in my neighborhoods and worried that, you know, something could spark and, and homes could be threatened. So yeah, it's a little unnerving. It is for sure. You know, across the state, we're experiencing drought and, um, you know, as many people have brought up some water mismanagement for, for decades, for maybe, you know, hundreds of years, 
in how the water flows and gets absorbed. Uh, one resident in Olinda I talked to said that um, the area behind her home is a thousand acres of sort of what was called experimental forest. And it was basically just non-native species that were planted and that went up in flames. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so those are continuing to burn as we just heard from Chris Chow in the roots underground. It's sort of this giant emu situation uh, in upcountry that's that's still going. And it's hard to believe that, you know, it's taking so long, but as he said, it, it may burn for, you know, a couple months. And so ongoing efforts to dig out the roots and control the, the burns happening. Yeah, still a scary situation. They, uh, those poor firefighters and um, DLNR forestry folks just can't, you know, cut them some slack. But thanks so much, Catherine. Thanks. That was HBR's Catherine Kluwit Pactel. Read more of her Maui County stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana, working to protect and manage Oahu's water resources since 1929 for fresh water now and for future generations. Boardofwatersupply.com. The Moth returns to Hawaii Theater on October 27th. They're looking for Hawaii storytellers to take part. Residents from all islands are encouraged to pitch their stories. Accommodations and travel to and from Honolulu are covered for selected storytellers. Learn more and submit your pitch at hawaiipublicradio.org slash the moth. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii State Health Insurance Assistance Program, SHIP. Volunteers helping Hawaii's community understand Medicare, 808-586-7299 or online at hawaiiship.org. Small businesses are feeling the squeeze from the effects of the Maui wildfires. That's the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beach reporter Paula Dobbin is on the line today. Hey, hey Paula, how you doing? Good morning, Catherine. I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. And I, I just saw uh, an update this morning from the county that they are letting some businesses into certain zones, yeah? Yeah, that's an encouraging sign. Um, my story today focused more on people who... Um, are just struggling to get back on their feet business-wise and are you know, having some issues with applying for loans and things like that. Yes, the Small Business Association, right, was uh, administration was uh, uh, putting out, you know, information about that. Um, yeah, so they have an economic uh, disaster recovery loan program as well as a physical property loan program. They're, they're designed to, you know, help people um, cover costs that their insurance uh, wouldn't pay for. But uh, the, the people that I talk to are um, having some difficulty with that. You know, they, they're being turned down because they can't prove um, future earnings, or in one case, the business was considered uh, too healthy, even though it had laid off 60% of its staff. So um, 
definitely not an easy process to navigate uh, getting an SBA loan, according to these folks. And then, you know, there's other people who don't even want to apply for one because they don't want to go further into debt. Um, some of them, you know, had taken out SBA loans to get through the pandemic, and they're still paying those off. So they're reluctant to um, seek out yet another loan that they would have to repay, um, not knowing, like, where their business is going to be located down the road, when it could be open, you know, things of that nature. And then you've got some businesses that maybe weren't, you know, affected by the wildfires per se, like they weren't burned, but I understand the water situation is a little tricky, too. Yeah, I mean, there's no uh, drinking water right now. There hasn't been since the fire. And um, when I spoke, um, well, when I emailed with the um, the county's top water official yesterday, he said it would probably be at least a month at a minimum before uh, the water is cleared to use. So for people who are in the restaurant um, or hospitality industry where they need to serve water, or wash dishes or things like that, um, they're very likely not going to be able to reopen at least until the water gets turned back on. Yeah, and we often, you know, hear about natural disasters and and the problem with power. But boy, when you don't have water, man, that's just it. It's just oh gosh, awful. Yeah, I mean, it's the water is just one of the multiple issues that these business owners are are dealing with. Um, there's one um, jewelry store owner that I spoke to for the story and. He has another location in Paia, so at least he has some income coming in. Um, but he would like to see the county set up some kind of tents, um, you know, large tents, maybe air-conditioned structures that are tent-like where um, business owners could at least set up shop temporarily um, while the town is being rebuilt. Uh, you know, he, he pointed out that he has seen this firsthand in parts of California that um, have been affected by earthquakes or wildfires that you know, when a town is destroyed, um, you know, people still need to keep working. And so um, other places have erected, um, you know, these kind of large um, tents um, that, that people can operate under, kind of like a craft fair situation, he said. And so he's hoping that the county might consider doing something like that. Yeah, kind of like a pop-up, right? I mean, that's, that's essentially what it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and given the fact that it's going to take you know, several years to get Lahaina rebuilt, um, you know, it's not, it's, a lot of people said to, that it's not feasible to, you know, move to another part of the island um, and try to set up shop. Like this jewelry store owner said that, you know, Lahaina was just so special with its um, you know, seaside culture, its Native Hawaiian history. It just had a lot of really unique features. And, you know, he, he's not really inclined to open a shop in Kahului or Wailuku or Kihei, you know, it's just, he just said for him, it's just not the same. So that's why he's hoping that he could at least, you know, open up a temporary shop on the, under a tent, you know, on the outskirts of, of Lahaina and, and serve that West Maui tourist um, community. Yeah, well, you know, certainly something to consider and, uh, you know, maybe uh, folks will be listening and, uh, and take the cues. But thank you so much, Paula. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Take care. All righty. That was reporter, uh, Civil Beat reporter Paula Dobbin with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read her story on this issue at civilbeat.org.
Many of the historic buildings lost in Lahaina were architectural emblems that marked the popular or common building styles of the time. And just as Hawaii is a melting pot of ethnicities, Lahaina was a melting pot of several architectural styles. The Conversations Russell Subiano was curious about the influences on the buildings in the town. He reached out to William Chapman, the dean of the University of Hawaii School of Architecture, to get a better understanding of Lahaina's architectural history. I first encountered William Chapman's name while reading an article published by the University of Hawaii News that discussed whether the blueprints existed to rebuild Lahaina's historic buildings. While that was what hooked me, what I was really interested in was whether all the different architectural styles brought to West Maui over the years resulted in a distinct Lahaina style. Think about it. You have the Baldwin home, which mirrored the homes in New England. You have the Wohing Museum, built with a very strong Asian influence. And all the shops along Front Street, they all reminded me of the plantation-style buildings I grew up with on the Big Island. I mean, you find parallels in a number of other plantation towns, even uh, Haleiwa, right, has a lot of similarities. So uh, I would say, you know, a lot of it's what I think people in the architectural history business would call a-stylistic. It's more of a kind of vernacular architecture, a kind of response to place. It's kind of late vernacular. I would roughly say that the earliest buildings in Lahaina, or if you wanted to give it a stylistic name, I would say a form of Georgian architecture, which dominated East Coast construction and much of the West, actually, until well into the 19th century. So the answer as to whether a distinct Lahaina architectural style emerged from all of the outside architectural influences? Not really, says Chapman. But the various styles of buildings is a big part of what made Lahaina unique. Take the Pioneer Inn, for example. Pioneer Inn, of course, is a much later building, sort of the third period of the significance of Lahaina. Let me say something more about Pioneer Inn. It became a kind of, I think, a signature for the town. It was built in 1901, and as you know, the Pioneer Inn was really named after the Pioneer Mill, and that was the beginning of the sugar industry in West Maui. In fact, almost all the buildings that you see in your typical photographs of Front Street or other parts of Lahaina were, in fact, from that plantation era, and they false front kind of architecture that you'd call kind of Italianate, sort of like what you saw when watching as a kid or something watching Gunsmoke. Also among the memorable and interesting structures, the Baldwin Home, which up until the fire was the oldest house still standing on Maui. And right next to it, its neighbor, the Siemens Hospital. Baldwin House was another coral block building. It dates to the 1830s, early 1830s, I think 33 to 1834. It was a coral block building that was covered with stucco. I think there was brick included in its construction as well. Back in the 60s, when it was first restored by the Lahaina Restoration Foundation, it was basically gutted at that time and then rebuilt from within. It was a two-story building, and then there was a one-story wing running to the north. Next to that was the Naval Hospital, or Siemens Hospital, also a masonry building, two stories, kind of more in a style that you'd probably call Monterey style, more like what you found in early U.S. settlements in California, kind of a combination of things Hispanic in a way and things East Coast. So it, it featured a 
second story gallery or lanai and something like you would actually see in parts of California. Many of Lahaina's historic buildings that were lost were converted into museums and overseen by the Lahaina Restoration Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving the history of Lahaina. And while many of them have partially or completely burned down, there remains a glimmer of hope. Detailed drawings of many of Lahaina's historic buildings were made by architects and students in the 1960s and 70s. A program that was created by the National Park Service in 1933 called the Historic American Building Record, a survey rather, HABS. The HABS program, they went around and they did a lot of drawings, often of buildings that were on their last legs. And so I think they, they probably well over half of the buildings in the Library Congress collection. One of the things they always said when they maybe made their justification to Congress is that in the event of a catastrophe, these drawings would provide the opportunity for reconstruction based on the, their precision. So I think there's probably enough actual material there at Baldwin House, the courthouse, and perhaps some other buildings. I, I noticed a lot of standing walls for some of the commercial buildings to basically know what was there. The Habs drawings don't address all these buildings. The Pioneer Inn seems to have extensive photographs, but no drawings. The courthouse was drawn. Ale Aloha, which was once the community center for Hawailoa Church, that has been drawn. I think Baldwin House has drawings. So there are a number of drawings that would aid in their construction. I ended my call with Chapman by asking him about Lahaina's architectural future. Should these historic structures be rebuilt? Or should there be more of a Hawaiian or modern influence? How do you design Lahaina's future without forgetting its past? You're going to have to think about how you're going to respond to all the different factions and interests. If we all come together and recognize that there's a little piece of all of Hawaii's history here, there's certainly the Hawaiian story itself, which is the substrata of all of it and continues to be a living part of that, or whether it's the dominant culture of plantation culture, which really created the kind of architecture that you see there. And and looking at the names of people affected by the fire, so many of the names are people connected to plantation labor of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. So that's part of their story, too. And you want to kind of have a place for all of these stories to be told. And I'm kind of hoping that maybe Lahaina could bring together all these disparate aspects of our past and our present and create some sense of unity. And that was William Chapman, head of the University of Hawaii School of Architecture, talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about Lahaina's architectural history. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. People in Yemen say their country is more than war and humanitarian aid. Even through conflict, it's also about daily life and their aspirations. Yemenis across their country and in the diaspora have a platform to speak. 
Uh, Yemen has great people, kind hearts, and they still have a hope. I'm Marco Werman, the Yemen Listening Project, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from SMS Consulting, providing data-driven strategic planning and evaluation services to nonprofits, businesses, and government agencies in Hawaii. Learn more at smshawaii.com. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And on today's Manu Minute, we're hearing from the Kaloa Maui, uh, Hawaii's endemic duck. These quacks are brought to you by Zeno Kanto and the University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart. Kaloa Maui, or the Hawaiian duck, is found only in Hawaii and is the only native duck species still present in the main Hawaiian islands. They're very close relatives of the mallard ducks that are commonly fed by children in public ponds and lakes. Unlike mallards, though, male and female koloa maoli are harder to tell apart. Both sexes have orange legs and feet and an overall mottled brown body. They also have greenish-blue patch of wing feathers known as a speculum, that is easily seen when they're swimming. Adult males are usually darker overall and have a brown bill, while females have a dull orange bill. So, if you see a pair of ducks that are similar looking and look like female mallards, there's a good chance you're looking at native Hawaiian ducks. Koloa maoli quack in a similar way to mallards, and this quack may have played an important role in Hawaiian history. It's said that Imai Kalani, the fierce Ali'i warrior of Ka'u on Hawaii Island, was blind, but was aided in his battles by two Koloa Maoli that would hover above and report to him through their quacks the direction of anyone approaching him in battle. He could then throw spears with deadly accuracy at his opponents. Koloa Maoli eat a variety of aquatic plants, green algae, and aquatic invertebrates like mollusks, snails, and crustaceans. They were still abundant and regularly hunted across Hawaii until much of their habitat was drained and converted to sugar plantations by the end of the 1800s. This is also around the time that mongoose were introduced, which found these ground-nesting ducks to be easy prey. By the early 1900s, Koloa Maoli were very difficult to find, and by 1962 there were fewer than 500 individuals left, restricted to the islands of Kauai and Ni'ihau, which, non-coincidentally, were the only islands without mongoose. They were federally listed as an endangered species in 1967, soon after a captive breeding program began. Captive-bred birds were released on the Big Island, Maui, and Oahu. A few hundreds still exist in upland ponds and streams on Hawaii Island, but the ones on Maui and Oahu have all interbred with introduced mallards, so mainly exist as Hawaiian duck hybrids. The best place nowadays to see non-hybrid koloa maoli is the island of Kauai, 
where as many as 2,000 birds inhabit wetlands, ponds, and taro fields. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about porcelain tile by Royal Mosa, made using recycled water and hydroelectric power to create floor and wall tiles inspired by trends in design and architecture. fact, 50% fiction. That's the story behind the Actors Group's ordeal to get a building permit from the city's Department of Planning and Permitting. It plays out with the backdrop of bribery scandals at Honolulu Hale. Here are actual TAG board members, uh, Lori Tonora, Eric Nemoto, Larry Bartley, and Brad Powell, recalling their dilemma with moving from their Chinatown location to a new home at the Dole Cannery in Ivalea. Eric, we've got just enough money to make it through the renovations. If we're not opened and bringing in revenue shortly after we move in, I don't know how we're going to make it. I know that. You know, the odds are the city won't approve us in time, right? I know that too. Yeah, and if we're not approved, you know that an inspector could come in any time and shut us down, right? And if they do, well, that's it for us. I know this sounds amazing coming from me, but I know that too. I have thought of nothing else except those things. So why are we going to do this? Well, we talked to Eric Nimoto, the writer of the play and president of TAG. The show opens on the 16th, and that night is already sold out, and a few others are close to it too, so don't delay if you want to be entertained about getting tangled in the red tape of permitting. Here's Eric. It tells the uh, story of our theater when we finally moved from Chinatown. We were located on Smith Street in the Mendonca building. And when we finally decided to move to the shops at Dole Cannery, which where we're, you know, officially still uh, in existence there, that's our permanent theater. But to be honest, we discovered during our move that if we move into a new place that wasn't already a theater, and it wasn't, it was the old Tuxedo Junction uh, where we occupy now, then you have to get a building permit and you have to pass inspection and all that. So it was a total shock to us, to me in particular. And we were at that crossroads where we say, well, what do we do? You know, and and, uh, the decision was, and it was my call. I say, hey, we gotta, we gotta do things right, you know? So I went on to the DPP and uh, told them that, uh, A, we wanna do things the right way. uh, So we'll get a building permit and renovate but in all honesty, uh, we, we had already kind of moved in, you know, and we had to do a play within the next month because we spent all of our funds that we were able to raise. And also we borrowed against a credit line that I had to personally <laughs> guarantee. And so if we weren't bringing in revenue, we had three months of free rent, as I recall from Dole, but we were coming up to the end of that. And so if we weren't bringing in revenue in the next month or so, 
I mean, we literally wouldn't have any funds to pay for the rent of the new lease that I had signed to move into Dole. So <laughs> I went to the DPP and I fessed up. I said, hey, you know, we never knew anything about it. I mean, we're actors, right? If everybody's, you know, just trying the best they can to keep the theater going, which dates back all the way to the mid-1990s, okay, when we started out on Kiavi Street. But anyway, I fessed up, and they said they understand the situation, but just get the building permit done as fast as possible. And my feeling at that point was rather euphoric because I said, oh, my gosh, we're going to be able to do this. So we went with the building permit process, and it took us forever. (laughs) So the play is uh, essentially tongue-in-cheek kind of describing what we went through. We started in 2010, and it took us, as I recall, about five years to finally get the building permit, and then another year to finally pass inspection. And so this story tells that tale. So the six-year saga. It's a six-year saga. And the play is very unique in the sense that there's a number of us who are from TAG who play ourselves. Like I play myself, The rest of the board members that went through the years uh, play themselves. Brad Powell, who is our artistic director. Laurie Tanahura, our production manager. Frankie Enos, who was our vice president for the longest time, plays herself. And Larry Bartley, a longtime volunteer, current member of our board, uh, who actually wasn't on the board at the time we made the move, but also plays himself a bevy of really outstanding local actors. So uh, we're really looking forward to this. So you have a cast of thousands. Cast of thousands, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. I hear uh, the DPP director, Donna Pana, may be very interested in coming to see a production. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the one thing I'd like to point out is that the, the gag line I used when we were going through the process was everybody say, hey, we got to do a play about this. And I said, yeah, no question. I'm going to write a play. We're going to do this, but we're going to wait till we get our building permit first, okay? <laughs> and so, but the truth of the matter is, once we got it done, I tell you, the last thing I wanted to do was relive any portion of that process. I just put it behind me, okay? But then last year sometime uh, decided, yeah, I'm going to write it down, but, you know, write the play. But I discovered two things very apparent. Number one was that, you know, if I did a strict chronology of what we had to go through, I mean, it would come across as a college lecture, you know. And as I recall, I slept through most of my college lectures, you know, so that didn't seem the way to go. And the second thing was we had all forgotten exactly what we had to do anyway. You know, every, not only me, but everybody else associated with the process, in, including Gary Parent, who was our wonderful architect who, you know, was a godsend because he decided to help us out at the time. He's with RIM Architects. And at the time he said, sure, he's going to help us out, you know, and but I don't think he necessarily thought it would take this long, you know. Even Gary kind of put it behind him and all that. So I was faced with the prospect of, you know, writing this play and deciding that it would not be an ABC type of thing where, you know, we we did this plan and we took it and we had to do this revision and then took it back and so on, so on. Well, I think, I, you know, I, yeah. we, we do have to acknowledge, though, is during that time we had the scandals about, you know, bribery. And you yes. had you had yes. not just the arrests, the indictments, but convictions. And I think even one inspector has done his time and is out. Yeah. Yeah. 
And this part of the fiction part about it, as far as fiction with related to our process, is that building permit, the play, does kind of dovetail and fictionally kind of dovetail into the fact that the the characters who are in the DPP, in the play, you know, like finally get exposed for the corruption, okay? So it didn't happen to us personally, obviously, you know, during that time, but it kind of all, you know, comes together in this play. So part of the fiction side of it is the chronology of it doesn't exactly follow, you know, what Tag went through and all mm -hmm. that, but because we've had, you know, the sensationalism of that, you know, event, I wrote that into the storyline. In fact, there's there's a scene there where we actually kept the newspaper that the Star Advertiser breaking a story on that April day, you know, so that is a prop in the play, you know, because we, we come into that very day where it was discovered that people were, were on the take. You know? Well, you know, I mean, we can't make this stuff up, right? <laughs> it's just... You can't make it up, yeah. <laughs> Although you can. <laughs> oh, yes, you can. But th then, you know, you would think that with all the publicity that, th you know, they were trying to clean house, and yet come to find out there was a recent indictment of another architect. So, yeah, it, the, the saga goes on. Saga goes on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we understand that your opening night is already sold out. Opening night is sold out. Uh, another night, September 23rd, was totally bought out. The ticket sales look really good for the rest of the night. So I started this, pro you know, I've got like, what, close to 30 people in this, you know, and that, uh, that was purposely done because when I've always written plays and directed plays, you know, because I, I'm the head of the theater also, I'm always cognizant of the bottom line, right? As a, as a community theater, you got to keep alive. And so... A lot of my plays have had a lot of, you know, cast of thousands because I tell the cast and crew, you know, I said, hey, if you just get one person, you know, to come to to the play each night, you know, we've got half the house sold out already, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of purposeful, but it's working out because the ticket sales looks really good. So um, I went into this telling everybody we want to sell out every night. You know, so we're looking good at this point. But, yeah, we want to encourage everybody. I mean, if they want to have a fun time, it has a, a, a message. You know, it also has a, a social message about, you know, our local style and where you divide showing aloha and where does it transcend into bribery. So it's a what we term a real laugh comedy, but it does have its uh, social, um, you know, um, debate. You know, so I think people coming to this play will be uh, highly entertained. All right. If I may say so myself. Okay, the building <laughs> permit. All right, can't wait to see it. But thank you so much, Eric. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Now that was Eric Nomoto, writer and president of the Actors Group, whose studios are at the Dual Cannery Shops. The production, the building permit, is about the theater's six-year effort to get a permit with the city. We'll have a link to the show on the conversation page of our website later today.
We are all out of time. But up tomorrow, we'll be hearing from a taro farmer about water use on Maui during this disaster. Got a Maui memory you would like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching uh, for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.